Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I am your host, Shavinya Vijay Kumar, a research analyst at the Institute. Sri Lanka is currently facing its worst economic crisis in 70 years. This economic meltdown sparked a political crisis. Frustrated Sri Lankans, who see no end to their burdens, have taken to the streets. The protest pressured the Rajapaksas to leave not only high politics but also the country. The political vacuum formed by the Rajapaksas saw the former Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe take office as President with Dinesh Gunawardene serving as Prime Minister. Amidst these developments, Sri Lanka is seeking its 17th IMF bailout loan. To understand Sri Lanka's economic and political situation, I am joined by two researchers from ISAS, Research Fellow Dr. Chulani Atanayaka and Postdoctoral Fellow Dr. Rajni Gamage. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you, Shavinya. Thank you. So, with the year-high balance of payment and foreign exchange deficits, the long-term dual deficit problem has finally caught up with the Sri Lankan economy. At the beginning of the economic crisis, the dominant narrative that gripped the media was the Chinese debt trap issue. But the economic crisis was revealed to be more complex than that. Dr. Chilani, would you care to give us a brief overview of the economic crisis and explain what caused it to end up in this precarious situation? Yes, Shavina, I think you basically gave a very brief overview, overview yourself about what has been happening in Sri Lanka. So, Sri Lanka's economic crisis has been um, in development for a longer period of time. But what the world saw during the past few months is a um, sudden uh, drastic decline in, in the current situation. Uh, the country is engulfed in a uh, for a decline for a forex reserve. So when uh, President uh, Gotabe Rajapaksha came into office in November 29, the foreign reserve stood at nearly USD 8 billion. And then it started declining the following year. It was 4 billion. Uh, by December 2021, it was down to less than 2 billion. Now, with no forex, uh, the import of essentials such as fuel, gas, medicine and food items became a problem. Uh, blackouts began uh, in mid-January like this year, extending uh, to 90 minutes at the beginning and then became lengthier for sometimes even more than 10 hours per day. Uh, doctors uh, constantly started warning about increasing shortage in medicine. Food supplies are th threatened largely because of the fuel crisis because without fuel um, there was no way of transporting vegetables and fruit, fish etc. from one part to the other part of the country and because of this the experts uh, predict now acute malnutrition which will rise from 13% to 20%. Now this crisis, as I said, um, which has been in the making, uh, like there are several factors, both uh, internal and external. Um, Sri Lanka has always had a structural economic problem that has led to ma macroeconomic instability, economic mismanagement by successive governments since the independence has cre created a 
uh, what we call as twin uh, deficit problem forex deficit as well as a balance of payment problem um, even though sri lanka opened its economy in 1970s we really did not uh, make use of that opportunity uh, to uh, have a export led economy instead we have an import led economy and then the successive governments have had tax reductions and tax exemption policies since early 1990s so in 2021 its tax revenue was only 9 0.6% of the gdp so these are some of the internal factors that has led to the um, crisis externally of course uh, there was the global pandemic uh, which has affected uh, the economies worldwide and then the um, as a result of this uh, sri lanka's um, general uh, remittances coming from tourism and migrant workers declined at a very rapid rate and then there was also the ukraine cry ukraine war which has led to inflation in fuel prices and commodities all over the world so these are some of the factors that uh, has led to the current crisis as you mentioned at the beginning yes the narrative has been about the chinese uh, debt trap but uh, if when you look at it uh, more closely sri lanka's current pr- debt problem is not merely because of the chinese debt we have larger debt problem with the capital markets president ranil wickremesinghe has been leading talks with the imf to secure a four year bailout program that could provide up to 3 billion dollars he has informed the parliament that the negotiations are progressing but did not provide a timeline for when a deal would be finalized What economic policy revisions should the current government focus on during this negotiation period? What are the important deliberations the current government need to have during this time? Dr. Rashni, would you like to share your perspective on this? Sure. Thank you, Shavinia. Um, so, just to get a brief snapshot of where the Sri Lankan economy is at the moment, um, the IMF has estimated that Sri Lanka's economy will shrink six uh, to seven percent. and so what we can expect is to see uh, more people being pushed below the poverty line um as you mentioned uh, the sri lankan government has estimated that obtaining uh, funds of around uh, us dollars 3 billion would be sufficient uh, to cover for essential um goods and services for the, for perhaps the next 6 months um and this is what they hope to obtain by securing the 17th rescue program uh with the IMF um so recently president vikramasinghe communicated that uh negotiations with the IMF have been uh, pushed backward uh, to september and one of the reasons that he cited for this uh was the instability that is caused by the protests and there is perhaps cause to question this statement uh because we have seen that IMF negotiations and programs in other countries such as lebanon and uh, pakistan have taken a protracted period of time So to answer your question on um what kind of economic policy revisions um the current government aims to implement I think it's important to look at why the IMF suspended its um funding facility which had been finalized in 2016 so the IMF program was suspended in 2019 and one of the main reasons for this was that um the economic policies pursued by the Gotabaya Rajapaksa government were contrary to fiscal consolidation and among these uh, policies were what dr atnayaka mentioned about um 
there have been uh, tax cuts uh, that were implemented in 2019. And so what the IMF really is looking for is uh, for Sri Lanka to restore its macroeconomic stability and debt sustainability, while at the same time protecting the poor and the vulnerable sections of the society. And so uh, to, to obtain this, what it would require is for Sri Lanka to step up its structural reforms on the one hand, uh, so as to address its vulnerability to corruption, uh, and then to unlock Sri Lanka's growth potential, so to in improve Sri Lanka's productivity, economic productivity. Um, so the co policy reforms that the government has so far communicated um, are threefold. First, it has engaged in uh, tightening monetary policy. Uh, second, it has indicated that it is open for pursuing state-owned enterprise reforms, uh, such as the Electricity Board, the Ceylon Petroleum Corporation, and Sri Lankan Airlines. Um, and third, uh, the government has um, started to pursue a policy of tax amendments, of increasing tax, uh, such as increasing the VAT tax and corporate taxes. Um, in terms of the challenges um, and tensions that are likely to emerge as the government pursues these economic reforms, uh, I think one of the main challenges that we see playing out even now is the opposition by workers' unions and trade unions to uh, privatization and state SOE reforms. Um, and this, this has been a part of Sri Lanka's history um, because opposition to privatization SOE reforms is, part of, is also part of the nationalist populist uh, kind of discourse that has been closely associated of late with the Rajapaksa political dynasty. Um, the second thing that the government has, um, one of the challenges that the government is facing is, of course, in order to pursue these economic, uh, painful economic reforms, it will require a degree of political stability and buy-in from all the political parties that are in parliament. And this is proving to be increasingly difficult. Um, the president has issued a call for support to form an all-party government. Um, and while there are certain members of the opposition that have indicated support for a common minimum uh, program, uh, the major opposition parties are unlikely to join the government um, because they see the government as basically defending the Rajapaksa interests uh, because the parliament is still dominated by the Sri Lanka Podujana Peramuna, the SLPP, uh, which is the government uh, closely affiliated with the Rajapaksa political dynasty. Sri Lanka has approached its friendly neighbours for economic support. India and China play a significant role in Sri Lanka's efforts to resolve the economic crisis. Dr. Rajni, could you please shed some light on how Sri Lanka's neighbours and other big powers have stepped in to help Sri Lanka's economy? So thank you, Shavinya. Um, if you look at the economic assistance that Sri Lanka has obtained in the context of the crisis, uh, India comes foremost among its neighbours. This year alone, it has provided around US dollars 3 billion in the form of currency swaps, credit lines and loans, but also in, in terms of emergency assistance, providing medical supplies, fertiliser and so on. Uh, you then also have um, assistance by multilateral organizations such as the World Bank, which has uh, reallocated some of its existing financing project projects towards uh, crisis funding. Japan has also been an interesting um, case in the context of the crisis, uh, indicating that it has been unwilling to uh, provide bridge financing while uh, the prevailing instability persists in the country. I think that China is a very interesting uh, case when it comes to uh, Sri Lanka. Like you s mentioned before, Shavinya, uh, there's a lot of talk about the Chinese uh, debt 
trap. Um, uh, but this thesis can be questioned uh, in the case of Sri Lanka. Um, Paris Club members, initially during the initial phases of the Sri Lankan crisis, uh, Paris Club members invited China to be part of the debt restructuring talks. Um, and there was a bit of um, talk at the time that China was not willing to be part of such multilateral engagements. Uh, but recently what we have seen in terms of China's behavior in, in the international realm, uh, we saw that recently China has indicated willingness uh, to engage in debt restructuring with Zambia, uh, thereby finalizing, a, paving the way for an IMF bailout program with Zambia. And I think that this provides a precedent uh, for cases such as Sri Lanka. And it also questions the, the myth or the thesis that China is not willing to work within multilateral fora like the IMF uh, to assist countries such as Sri Lanka. There are several caveats which come with accepting support from neighbouring powers, one of which is to maintain good relations with these supportive powers. The recent Chinese spy ship issue has resulted in some tensions with India. What should Sri Lanka's foreign policy stance be to navigate the big power rivalry successfully? Dr. Chulani? Yes, uh, Shavini, I think this is a very interesting as well as a tricky situation for any small country who face similar kind of uh, geopolitical power struggle. Now, first of all, this so-called Chinese spy ship, uh, which is called uh, Yuangwan-5, is a third generation tracking ship of Yuangwan class, which is it's been made to track and support satellite and intercontin intercontinental ballistic missiles by Chinese army. Uh, but China is not the only country who possesses uh, ships of this kind. Uh, Russia, United States, France, United Kingdom, North Korea, all these countries have similar kind of uh, facility and technology, even India does. So um, according and also uh, this is not the first ship that is coming to Sri Lanka. According to a retired admiral uh, from Sri Lanka who um, mentioned uh, during a recent local program, uh, between 2020 and 2022 alone, there has been 125 vessels that have docked in Sri Lankan ports uh, by different foreign countries. Uh, that I think even included a warship from United States. So the whole um, hype about Chinese ship docking in Sri Lanka comes with other, other geopolitical aspects. As we know that there is a strong uh, competition and a conflict brewing in the Indian Ocean region between United States and India-led West and, and China. Um, so India um, is, and especially the Indian media, is extra sensitive to anything that is happening in Sri Lanka when it comes to China. So the whole discourse we saw around this ship is a result of this. So in this context, Sri Lanka should be very careful to in navigating a situation like this. We have always uh, mentioned that we are following a non-aligned foreign policy, but we have seen with different administrations, there has always been tilt to one side or the other. So the first and foremost, even though this is a very difficult, uh, economically difficult time for Sri Lanka, the first and foremost thing that we have to do is to avoid getting tilted to one power or the other and also to 
prove that we are a non-aligned kind uh, country by uh, proving through our action so uh, rather than making policies according to the interest of one party or because of a pressure from one party it's better that we uh, base our decisions on existing pol international policy frameworks such as rule based order so what we actually have to think about is whether docking this ship would have any impact on our policy on rule based order and we should make uh, our decisions based on this i think that's why sri lanka obviously uh, agreed for the chinese uh, ship to dock in hambantota port at the moment and this is also a greater economic opportunity and an opportunity for uh, education and technological trans transfer for sri lankan um, scientific community so we should not let go of a situation like that in the meantime we should also show to the other parties that we are in control in a situation like this so we should make initiatives to go for our navy to go and observe for our scientists to go and observe the technology and show this in public media so that we the um other countries know that we are not being swayed or controlled by uh, anybody's decision sri lanka is making a decision on its own i know it is a very tricky situation because of the economic crisis but uh, in my belief yes sri lanka is in economic crisis but the reality is that sri lanka is in a way more uh, strategic position in the indian ocean region all these countries want sri lanka in their strategic orbit so we are we have some advantage in that regard so we have to be able to be creative and use this to our advantage and set the precedent for our foreign policy for for the years to come after this crisis let's shift our attention to domestic politics Political observers have pointed to the unprecedented scale and period of protests in Sri Lanka as an indication of an end to the old political order and a beginning of a new era in the country. The Rajapaksa family was ousted from high political office in Sri Lanka. So, Dr. Chulani, do you think this is the beginning of the end for the nepotism and cronyism that has plagued Sri Lankan politics for decades? well we hope that it would be the end for the nepotism and cronyism but uh, i have to admit that the dynastic politics and patronage based politics has always been a character of sri lankan's political system and these fam dynastic families have always rise and fallen from time to time when one family falls there's another emerging that's exactly what has happened over the period since the independence i'm sure rajni will be in a better position to uh, explain this because that's a specialized area um so um i think with the rajapaksha administration what we saw is that this dynastic politics uh, taking into completely a different level according to some media articles uh, i think somewhere I, that was published somewhere in 2014 or 2015 uh during the second term of mahindra rajapaksha administration there has been more than 40 mem members appointed to government posts Th these were excluding cabinet posts uh, portfolios so they were completely controlling the entire system so that eventually led to their demise so i think even though i i i am not 
so confident to say that dynastic politics will end from here because for instance the current president uh, ranil vikramasinghe is very much likely to hand over his party to his cousin ruan vijayvardhana who was a former mp uh in this context i do not know whether it will be the end but i think this provides some insight uh, to how people would react if they uh, take control of too much of space i do not think people will uh, tolerate it we spoke about the political system from the elite perspective let's now talk about the sri lankan civil society So the economic meltdown sparked the political crisis. As an observer of the current state of Sri Lankan politics, my question is, do you see a fundamental change in the demands of Sri Lankan civil society? In this sense, do you think the protests are more reactive than proactive? Do you see Sri Lankans demanding genuine change in politics or do they just want to see an end to this economic crisis? Dr. Rajni, would you care to share your perspective on this? Uh, yes, Shavinia. So, I would um, agree that there has been a shift uh, in the nature of the people's protests in Sri Lanka. Um, the Janata Aragale, or the People's Struggle, as these protests are known as, um, when they started out uh, in early March this year, um, they had a number of demands and. foremost among these was first chasing the rajapaksa family out of politics and recovering the stolen funds that um the rajapaksa family uh was said to have um facilitated and stolen um the second was that they demanded for relief from the economic crisis um and then along with this there were the demands for greater accountability transparency uh for greater responsiveness of government to uh, the citizens that they are supposed to represent uh and for greater efficiency in of government in delivering the basic necessities to the citizens um these demands still remain within the people's protests uh, but i think that in the evolution of the sri lankan crisis and in the evolution of the mass protests um we see may the 9th and the week of july the 13th uh, uh of july the 9th as being um really determinative moments uh in in how the mass protests have evolved um one of the things we see post may 9th was that um with the appointment of ranil vikramasinghe as prime minister uh we saw the nature of the mass protests transition uh to some degree uh there was a lesser composition of middle class protesters uh and there was also the re- the real or perceived uh dominance of certain far left uh anarchist elements within these protests um the second main shift we see is in the week of July the 9th uh where with president former president gotabe rajapaksa resigning from power uh from office um we see that the main slogan of the protest which was go home gota uh, no longer been there because it has been achieved now and i would argue that in the period after this that there is not so much a rallying force or a rallying common cause that can bring together the diverse sections that comprise the mass protests um and so to your question of whether the mass protests um 
are reactive, have become reactive, I, I would agree uh, in large part to that. Um, we see now the mass protests, protesters, many of them asking for elections as a solution to the current crisis. Um, the protesters are in large part not appeased uh, by the all-party interim government uh, that the current political leadership is attempting to form. Um, and they are calling for a degree, a, a type of system change. And I think that this is perhaps the main fault line that is now emerging in the Sri Lankan context, which is that the protesters are asking for a system change of clean politics, of, of politics that can deliver uh, their basic rights. Um, but on the other hand, the government uh, sees this system change in a fundamentally different way. Uh, President Vikramasinghe recently commented on the need for an economic reset. So we can see how the president is trying to align his agenda as meeting the demands of the protesters, uh, that, this, that this system reset is delivering what the protesters are asking for in terms of a system change. Um, and if you look at what President Raj, uh, Vikramasinghe um, terms as within this system reset, uh, it's economic uh, on the one hand, but it also includes um, the promise of constitutional reforms through the 22nd Amendment uh, that has been proposed recently. Um, uh, measures such as the parliamentary oversight committees, um, other institutional reforms like um, the institution of a uh, Jana Sabha, which is a citizens, a, 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 people, a people's council. Uh, so these measures that uh, are trying to portray themselves as bringing in more youth and bringing in more non-MP experts into the parliamentary deliberative and democratic process. Uh, but I think that this is where the main fault line emerges, whether the government is able to successfully convince um, that they are meeting the needs of the protesters. Um, and just to finally, I will say that there is also reason to believe that the government does not fully believe that it is able to meet the needs of the protesters. And this explains why after President Rah uh, Vikramasinghe comes into power, he has pursued a very consistent uh, strategy of intimidation and crackdown on the protesters, on trade unionists, um, in a way preempting uh, the kind of resistance or the kind of unrest that would emerge as the government is now uh, about to implement very painful economic reforms and as its legitimacy is increasingly questioned by the people. Thank you both for sharing your insights. You are listening to South Asia Chat. To learn more about our work, please visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. You can also get updates through social media. We are on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram.